fire! Welcome back to the Tech Weasel Podcast for Friday, July 24th, 2020. As always, I am your host, Paul Husinga, coming to you from my secret lair, which is cleverly disguised as an episode of the reality TV show, Hoarders. Today, we're going to take a look at the fire that broke out on the USS Bonhomme Richard last week, get some background information on that ship and its role in the U.S. Armed Forces, the troubled history of the F-35 program, and why having an amphibious assault capability is still important to U.S. interests around the world. LHD-6 is the sixth of eight WASP-class amphibious assault ships that were all commissioned between 1989 and 2009. LHD stands for Landing Helicopter Dock, and all the ships in this class are equipped to carry and deploy both fixed and rotary wing aircraft, as well as conventional landing craft and hovercraft, in support of an almost full-strength marine expeditionary unit. These ships come in at around 40,500 tons displacement at full load, which splits the difference in size between an Essex-class fleet carrier from the start of the Second World War and the Midway-class developed and commissioned at the very end of the war. They have a large straight flight deck, but no arrestor gear or catapults, and a well deck in the stern that can hold two LCACs, which is an acronym for Landing Craft Air Cushion, or two LCUs or uh, 12 LCMs, which are conventional boat-type landing craft. There's room to store the MEU's ground vehicles and load them directly to and from the landing craft in the well deck, and there's a hangar deck to hold aircraft and helicopters. Typically, the air group would include four AH-1 attack helicopters, uh, 12 Osprey tilt rotors, three or four smaller utility helicopters, and four CH-53 heavy lift helicopters. They also carry a half dozen Harrier II vertical takeoff and landing attack aircraft, but the fleet is slowly being converted over to F-35B VTOL strike fighters, and more on that in a minute. These ships' reason for existence is to be able to deliver all that hardware, plus about 2,000 units of self-loading cargo in the form of U.S. Marines, to any place with a beach, regardless of whether the people who own that beach approve of that idea. Now, because of the threat posed by fast attack craft, which can range anywhere from enemy naval units equipped with short-range surface-to-surface missiles and small-caliber deck guns, to irregular forces like uh, civilian speedboats carrying guys with RPGs or a big pile of C-4 for a suicide attack, over-the-horizon deployment is a preferred way of getting the Marines ashore. Sitting 15 or so miles offshore and using the very fast Osprey tilt rotors and LCACs, which can do in excess of 40 knots fully loaded, the mothership is insulated from those kinds of threats, as well as many land-based anti-ship missiles, while still being able to quickly deliver Marines and their equipment to a defended shoreline. The follow-on design to the WASP-class, the America-class LHAs, were based on the last ship in the WASP production run, but they eliminated the well deck in favor of more room for aircraft and helicopters. This turned out to be a very unpopular idea with a lot of people in the Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy, and after two uh, Flight Zero ships, the America and the Tripoli, the third ship of the class, LHA-8, the Bougainville, is getting a well deck during construction. The America class was designed from the start to accommodate the F-35B in place of the Harrier, but the WASP class ships needed some flight deck upgrades to be able to handle them. And the F-35 program has a lot of teething problems, which really isn't surprising considering the details of its genesis. The Lightning II, known as the Joint Strike Fighter, is what's considered a fifth-generation jet. 
Examples of first-generation fighters would be the F-86 Sabre and the MiG-15. The second generation added supersonic speed and radar-guided missiles that were capable of beyond-visual-range engagement, uh, like the F-104 and the MiG-21 fall into that category, as well as the original Harrier, though it's not supersonic. Uh, third gen is, is uh, exemplified by the F-4 Phantom II, and this is where the emphasis moved from pure interceptors to aircraft that could perform a lot of different roles, including ground attack. Fourth gen is what's mostly in service around the world now. There you get fly-by-wire control, uh, relaxed static stability for greater maneuverability, and lots of digital electronics. These are the kind of things that are the defining characteristics of this generation. The F-15, F-16, F-A-18, MiG-29, Su-27, uh, Eurofighter T Typhoon, and the Rafale are all examples. Now, because these were very expensive aircraft to develop and build, they've been continually upgraded from their original designs to the very limit of what's possible with the basic airframe and even beyond. The F-A-18 is a perfect example of this. The Hornet started out as the offspring of the YF-17, which was the design that lost the USAF lightweight fighter competition to the F-16. When the Navy went looking for something to replace the A-7 Corsair and the F-4 Phantom, and to supplement the F-14 Tomcat with a lighter, less expensive aircraft, McDonnell Douglas came up with the F-A-18, which went into service in the early 80s. Now remember, this started out as a lightweight design, but the Navy kept asking for more and more capability, especially as the dedicated A-6 ground attack jet and its EA-6B electronic warfare version were, were uh, retired at the end of the 90s, and the F-14 left the fleet in 2006. So the F-A-18 grew in every dimension into the E and F model Super Hornet, going from a max takeoff weight of 23.5 metric tons to just under 30, and basically becoming a whole new airplane. So there in the 90s, stealth technology is becoming practical for more than just weird little attack jets and stupidly expensive flying wing bombers, and designs for 5th gen fighters start being drawn up that will include baked in low radar uh, observability, the ability to super cruise above Mach 1 without using afterburners that gulp fuel and kill operating range, uh, thrust vectoring on the engines, and a very high level of networking with other aircraft. The Air Force develops the F-22 to replace the F-15 as its marquee fighter, but they'd very much like to also have a fifth-generation aircraft that does what the F-16 does, and that's less expensive than the F-22 so that they can buy more than just a handful of them. Now, the original plan was to build 750 F-22s, but that ended up getting cut all the way down to just 187 once they got a look at the $150 million each price tag. The Navy would also like a fifth-generation aircraft that does all the stuff the Super Hornet does, but the Harrier too, if it's not too much trouble, so the Joint Strike Fighter program is born. Now, in theory, having one basic aircraft design that can be modified for the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines sounds like an excellent idea. The more airplanes you build, the lower the per-unit cost will be, because you can amortize all the development over the entire production run. Maintenance will be less expensive because they'll share common spares, Training programs can be combined for pilots and maintenance crews, and so on. In practice, however, this is a disastrously bad idea that has worked out a total of only once in jet fighter history. That program was the F-4 Phantom, and even though it was more or less successful in its roles for all three services, it was not without major issues. A much better example of what to expect is the F-111 Aardvark, and yes, that is its real name which was supposed to be the end-all, be-all, heavy two-seat interdiction fighter-bomber for the Air Force and the Navy. 
It incorporated a lot of advanced technology for the mid-1960s, including a variable geometry swing wing, afterburning turbofan engines, and terrain-following radar. Now, while the A-model F-111 would eventually go into service with the Air Force, the Navy would have been better off just basically pushing the money spent trying to develop a carrier-based F-111B into a big pile and lighting it on fire. It never even got close to production status. So that brings us to the F-35, which, in a triumph of optimism over experience, was intended to be all things to all services, including our allies like the UK. The A model is a straight conventional takeoff and landing design for Air Force use, and it's the only one of the three with an internal 25mm cannon. The F-35B is the Stovall version, intended to replace the Harrier, and it trades off a whole bunch of internal fuel capacity and payload in order to have the ability to take off, hover, and land vertically. A big engine-driven fan just behind the cockpit and a rotating main nozzle on the jet engine provide vertical lift. Finally, there's the F-35C, which is designed for fleet carriers, launching by catapult and landing via a resting wire. It has an 8-foot wider wingspan and about 45% more wing area to lower landing speeds, and as a result it has folding wings, unlike the B model. Its maximum gross takeoff weight is roughly similar to a Super Hornet. So as you might expect, a technically ambitious project like this with a lot of variations to suit the specific needs of the different services has turned out to be more expensive and failure-prone than was hoped. And it didn't help that it went straight from the drawing board to production, which led to a lot of costly changes to already manufactured aircraft. It's currently estimated that the total cost per F-35A over its entire 50-year service life, and yes, they still plan on flying them in 2065, will be $618 million per plane, with something like $85 million of that being the starting sticker price and the rest for upgrades and maintenance over the life of the airframe. But JSF was literally a project too big to fail. Well, the Navy could certainly wring another couple of decades out of the Super Hornet and upgrade it to what the Russians call Generation 4.5 status for fleet carrier use. The Air Force needed numbers of less expensive fighters with attack capability to supplement the paltry F-22 production run and replace the aging F-15 and F-16, both of which are approaching the 50-year mark in service. The AV-8B Harrier II, while a far cry from the original mid-1960s aircraft, is also at the end of its developmental rope, so if the Marines wanted a Stovall aircraft for the next half century, it was JSF or nothing. The Royal Navy went all in on it too, spending a staggering 7.6 billion pounds on two new Queen Elizabeth-class carriers that would be more or less useless without a successful B-model to operate from their ski jumps. So, looping back around to the WASP-class LHDs, the Navy and the Marine Corps' goal was to replace the AV-8B with the F-35B. One of the many issues with development, though, was the fact that the single jet nozzle on that particular aircraft sits closer to the ground than the dual-pivoting hot nozzles on the Harrier, and because of that, the F-35 caused damage to asphalt runways during testing and required modification to the flight decks on the carriers. Now, if you watch a video of a Harrier doing a rolling takeoff from the deck of an LHD, and then see the same thing with an F-35, you'll notice that the crew has sprayed down the surface of the deck with water for the F-35 to reduce the heat damage. In case you're wondering, both the Harrier and the F-35B can also take off vertically, but that's not something normally done because it severely limits how much payload can be carried, and it basically puts a fully armed VTOL aircraft into a fuel state emergency as soon as it's clear of the carrier. Switching gears here a little bit, let's discuss why having these ships is important to U.S. interests. 
Now, historically, there hasn't been a large-scale uh, amphibious assault since the Korean War, or maybe the Falklands, and in recent conflicts, the Marines have always had some sort of a bridgehead to stage from. The U.S. is one of only a handful of countries with the capability to even attempt beach landings with any meaningful forces. The former Soviet Union was trying to build a comparable uh, capability before it collapsed, and Russia maintains it to some extent, but the big up-and-comer in this game is China. The People's Liberation Army Navy, and yes, that's what it's really called, has a very respectable amphibious assault capability and is building it out with ships that fill the same role as the U.S. LHDs. They even have a couple of Zuber-class former Soviet air-cushioned landing craft that are actually bigger than LCACs and are probably building more, plus smaller air-cushioned vehicle landing craft as well. So why does the PRC want a robust expeditionary marine infantry force? Well, of course, there's always Taiwan, which mainland China has maintained as a breakaway province of the People's Republic. As you might guess, the people of the Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan, strenuously disagree with this view. Now, while the politics surrounding all this are very complicated and contentious, the PRC mostly just makes noise about this issue rather than really threatening to reunite China by force, because the rest of the world would undoubtedly get involved. However, there's been another fight brewing for just as long in the South China Sea between the PRC, Vietnam, the Philippines, and to a lesser extent Malaysia and Brunei. For decades, China has claimed ownership over a very large section of the South China Sea, far beyond the normal territorial limits agreed upon by the international community. The area, collectively referred to as the Spratlys, contains a large number of small, mostly uninhabited islands and reefs. Pretty much every square inch of land that remains above sea level on a consistent basis has been claimed by one of the players in this drama, but more importantly, this area contains possible oil and gas reserves larger than those beneath Kuwait, the ocean is a rich and productive fishing ground, and a sizable portion of the world's shipping of both goods and oil transit the South China Sea. In order to strengthen their claims, both in international law and by physical presence, since 2013 the PRC has been literally building new islands by dredging sand and piling it up on top of coral reefs, cementing it all together, and then putting buildings and very large airstrips on top. In March of 2015, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Admiral Harry Harris, referred to this as the Great Wall of Sand, and the name stuck. In total, China has built seven new islands totaling about 3,200 acres, and three of these islands have 10,000-foot-long runways on them that are suitable for operating practically any type of military aircraft in the People's Liberation Army inventory. All the islands have anti-ship and anti-aircraft missile installations and deep water ports as well as permanent facilities like barracks and warehouses. Now, international law doesn't recognize reclaimed reefs as uh, legitimate outposts for the purposes of defining maritime territorial waters or exclusive economic zones, but China's ability to menace any of the other would-be claimants to the area with their new permanent military bases and their robust amphibious assault capability means more in practice than arguing about it in The Hague. Since so much trade passes through this area, it's in the United States' interest to make sure that China doesn't close off the South China Sea, and the Navy routinely sails through this area on freedom of navigation missions. But should things go really sideways, the Marines might once again find themselves storming the beach on an atoll on the far side of the globe to thwart an aggressively expansionist Asian Empire-building attempt. All of this loops back around the Bonhomme Richard and the fire. Now that we know what this ship is for and why it's important to have ships like it in the fleet, 
we can finally get around to some informed conjecture about what happened pierside earlier this month. The ship was in port for a refit, which is something that just has to be done on a regular basis in order to keep vessels from deteriorating. Work that can't be done at sea or major maintenance tasks are uh, completed by civilian contractors brought in specifically for the job, and the crew gets to uh, enjoy an extended break from deployment. Out of the normal thousand or so officers and enlisted sailors assigned to BHR, only about 160 were on board at the time the fire started. It was a figurative skeleton crew basically there to keep the lights on and help direct the civilian workers who were doing the heavy lifting. Now this is important because the Navy takes firefighting very seriously. If you go back to World War II, there are several instances where ships that should have been lost were saved and eventually went on to fight another day because of the damage control and firefighting efforts of their crews. The Japanese Navy, on the other hand, lost a number of ships that probably could have been saved because they relied on smaller groups of highly trained specialists. Now after World War II, this lesson kind of got forgotten by the U.S. Navy and on July 29, 1967, it came back to haunt the crew of the USS Forrestal. The carrier was running flight ops in the Gulf of Tonkin against North Vietnamese positions, and a misfire of a rocket from an aircraft staged on the deck led to a fuel fire. Now, the Navy had transitioned to relying on highly trained damage control teams, and the Forrestal's teams rushed to fight the fire. Unfortunately, they arrived just in time to be hit by a chain reaction of explosions of bombs that were awaiting loading on aircraft, some of which dated back to the Korean War and were much less stable than current production munitions. Almost anyone with any level of training in firefighting was wiped out in a matter of minutes, but the remaining crew's Herculean efforts saved the ship and got the fire under control, but not before 134 sailors were killed and 161 more were injured. This time the lesson sunk in, and the Navy made a priority of training every sailor to be at least minimally proficient in fighting fires. In the Marine Corps, they say that every Marine is a rifleman. The idea there being that no matter what any Marine does, from drivers to mechanics to supply clerks, they should all be able to pick up a weapon and fight effectively as part of an infantry unit if they need to. In the Navy, you can say that every sailor is a firefighter, and all new recruits have to go through a week-long course in damage control and fighting fires so that they all have at least a minimum amount of skill to be able to be useful in an emergency. When I was in my early 20s, a friend of mine's dad was a retired chief petty officer. He was, for lack of better terms, both salty and plain-spoken. And at one point, our group of friends were all hanging out at their house, and it came up in conversation that somehow my friend's dad didn't know how to swim. I couldn't wrap my brain around that, so I asked him how he could have spent decades in the Navy and never learned how to swim. His response was simple. If everybody does their damn job, nobody needs to know how to swim. While this is true in today's Navy, the same can't be said for the contract maintenance workers who aren't expected to be proficient firefighters. Undoubtedly, there were some people who were responsible for safety, and as professionals, they all take the risks involved in doing hot work very seriously. Although these ships are designed with very robust fire protection built in, a combination of certain systems being disabled to allow work to be performed, the fireproof compartmentalization of the ship being compromised by the need to run power and equipment back and forth throughout the ship, and most of the ship's huge cadre of trained firefighters not being aboard, led to a fire that very quickly got out of control. At that point, the primary objective became making sure lives weren't lost, and fortunately no fatalities or serious injuries resulted. 
At sea, a fire is an existential threat to the ship and everyone aboard, so the level of risk that's appropriate in containing it is a lot higher than pierside where everyone can be quickly evacuated to safety. I can't really blame anyone for prioritizing safety of personnel over putting out the fire as rapidly as humanly possible, regardless of the danger. In the end, it took several days to finally extinguish the last hotspots, and the ship sustained significant and widespread damage. There's even been some talk about whether she will ever return to service because of how expensive it will be to ensure that the structure of the hangar and flight decks hasn't been compromised. It remains to be seen whether it's economically viable to repair the damage, or if the ship will be cannibalized to keep the other wasps supplied with spares and then scrapped. The approximate price tag for the ship was something around $175 million in 1990s money, with the America-class Flight 1 ships being vastly more expensive at $3.4 billion a pop, so that's a pretty big write-off, and it's a non-trivial loss of the fleet's amphibious assault capability. But then again, $3.4 billion only gets you 40 F-35Bs these days. I think that's probably enough for this week. I hope you learned something, since I certainly did while researching all this. Please bookmark techweasel.com and subscribe to my YouTube channel and the audio podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. See you next time, and thanks for listening. <laughs>